Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you or around you, and hopefully you do, we're going to be looking at Acts 1, verses 1 through 11 today. It's here where we're going to see one of the most important aspects of the Christian faith. So I just finished uh, going through the Together for the Gospel conference, so I am excited to be preaching today and to be diving into this incredibly important aspect of our faith. So we as a church, uh, not, not just this church, but the church in general, will usually spend months at a time looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But we have the tendency almost to skim over the ascension of Christ. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am, I'm guilty of, of skimming over it. I'm guilty of not realizing the importance of it along with the rest of the Easter story. And so when I first taught the book of Acts uh, a few years ago when I was in Georgia, I feel like I barely focused on the significance of the ascension. So if we as Christians, if we are encouraged by the resurrection of Jesus, all the more should we be encouraged by his ascension. The ascension of Jesus is one of the most encouraging doctrines in all of Christianity. So before we kind of dive into this, I want to give you something to think about. What made the resurrection of Jesus one of the most important facts in history? What made the resurrection one of the most important things in all of the universe? Now here's the thing to think about. If all Jesus was, was resurrected from the dead, that doesn't necessarily make it any more unique or powerful than any other resurrection story that we see in the Bible or that we see in any other uh, myth that we might have in history. But if Jesus was raised in glory, if Jesus was raised in power and ascended to heaven, then we have something entirely different. Notice in history, uh, when we think of like the resurrection of Lazarus, we don't talk about it with the same weight. We don't talk about it with the same power that we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Because what we're going to see is that if Jesus was only raised to the same level as Lazarus, I highly doubt the apostles would have had the same power and drive that would have inspired them to carry out the gospel mission. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but right after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Peter still goes fishing. James, John, the other disciples, they still go fishing. Thomas still doubts. So it, there has to be something of more supernatural importance and power that has inspired these men to go out and change the world with the gospel. And so what I really believe that is, is that the ascension is that moment that has really changed these men from, from the cowardly fishermen to the world changers for the gospel. So the ascension is this grand visual of the deity of Jesus Christ and is one of the clearest displays of his glory. Now John Calvin, he put it like this. He said, The Lord by his ascension into heaven has opened up the access to the heavenly kingdom, which Adam had shut. For having entered it in our flesh, as it were in our name, it follows that we are in a manner seated in heavenly places, not entertaining a mere hope of heaven, but fully possessing it in our Lord. So what we see then is heaven has been open, eternal life has been given, and Christ is seated on the throne. And all of this is seen by the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of his Father. So here's our blueprint for the rest of the morning. We're going to look at the eternal significance of Christ's ascension. We're going to see the hope that we have because he has ascended. And then we're going to see the mission that we are now called to now that we have the hope of an ascended Savior. And I know that right now we do need a lot of hope. So I know that as we 
are going through this tough time, we can see that Jesus is our ascended king and that he is reigning and ruling over all things. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to dive into Acts 1. We're going to just read the the first 11 verses. And so here's what uh, Luke says. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so I know that we started with verse 1, but I almost want to work backwards. I want us to, to look at verse 9, where we see the resurrected Christ ascending and the angels appearing and saying that the very Jesus that went up is the same Jesus that will one day come back. So I want us to talk about the eternal significance of that event right there. See, what this does is that this moment, it paves the way for one of the most important doctrinal issues and truths of the Christian faith. I would say that the ascension of Christ is one of the most important details in history. I would say that you can't have the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus be separated. Those two events need to be together. That is where you really see the most power and truth is when you look at those two events as as one important aspect of faith. So one of the things that the apostles seem to not get through their heads is that Christ was not going to rule as king over the people of Israel like they thought the Messiah would. So the only question that you see them ask here in Acts chapter 1 is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So right there, that's their priority. That's what they see as the thing that matters the most. But within one chapter, between Acts chapter 1 and the end of Acts chapter 2, that priority changes entirely. Now, this is a very serious change because if you remember anything about the Israelites, you would hopefully remember that they were very passionate about their nation. They were longing for the day to when the glory of Israel would return. And so... That, that desire seems to fizzle away with the apostles within about one chapter. So something big would have had to have caused this. And we know that this was the ascension of Jesus. And what about the ascension of Christ made this happen? What brought about this, this massive change? Well, it was through Christ's ascension into heaven that they received something far greater than a king reigning on earth. They received something so much more powerful than just one person reigning over just the people of Israel. So a very uh, easy question that we need to ask and, and we can find the answer to is, to whom was Jesus returning? Or who was he ascending to? 
Now, it's not a super hard question. We know that he was ascending to sit at the right hand of God, the Father. Now, Jesus did not just go up to heaven and tell his Father, hey, here's everything that happened. I'm going to go and uh, take a break now. I think I've done my part. But instead, what we see is that he ascends and he sits on the right hand of his Father on his throne. So now that Jesus is seated on the throne, one chapter later in Acts chapter 2, he sends the Holy Spirit, which is of universal importance. So here's what we need to understand. If Jesus did not ascend to the Father, the Holy Spirit would not have been sent. The church would have stopped dead in its tracks right then and there because there's no way that this group of fishermen who were so afraid a couple of days before would have had the courage to get this movement up off the ground. So Matt Chandler, he put it like this. He said, when Christ ascends up to his throne, he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now the presence of Christ everywhere, available to all at any given moment. So the presence of Christ is so cosmic that on the outskirts of our solar system, there the presence of Christ is available to whatever via the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet in this room and in our hearts, the presence of Christ is here even now via the power of the Holy Spirit. So without the ascension of Jesus, there is no church. There is no sending and receiving of the Holy Spirit. There's no guarantee that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things. And this goes right into another amazing truth of the ascension, is that Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things. He holds the entire world in his hands, like we sang on Easter. Christ is not bound to ruling one part of a small Middle Eastern country. He rules all of it. He is completely sovereign over all things. We know that Donald Trump is not sovereign over all things. Vladimir Putin is not sovereign over all things. Kim Jong-un, Benjamin Netanyahu, they're not sovereign over anything or, and not sovereign over all things. There's not one politician, celebrity, pastor, person, or virus that is sovereign over all things. Jesus Christ rules over them all. And he holds them all in his hands because he is king. They are only in that position because Christ placed them there according to his will. Now, I think what the apostles realized was that Christ reigning over all creation far exceeds him just ruling over the nation of Israel. We know that Christ's rule, it exceeds just a political rule. We see him as judge. We see him as our advocate before the Father, as the sustainer of creation. All of these things are because of his death, resurrection, and ascension. And what I want us to notice is that Christ's influence spreads far beyond the walls of Jerusalem. If Christ was just king of Israel, he would not have had the same reach and impact that we see him having now. No king in history has ever had a reach over the nations like Jesus has. Even the Roman Empire of the first century or the Babylonian Empire in the Old Testament, the British Empire of several centuries ago, None of them had the impact and the reach that Christ has on the earth right here and right now. And that is something that is amazing to think about. There is no person in, in religious history or secular history that has impacted the world greater than Jesus Christ. No one has ever had that big of an impact. So the fact that he rose again, not just from the grave, but rose to sit at the right hand of God is the most important thing in all of human history. So what we also need to remember is that Jesus did not ascend and just take a seat because he accomplished everything that he needed to do. Like verse 1 said, Jesus only began to do his work in the Gospels. So we'll get back to that in a little bit. But even right now, we continue 
or he continues to work. He has an absolutely vital role. So I want us to focus real quick on two of those roles, the two of the most crucial roles that Christ has now that he has ascended. And the first thing that the ascension proves to us is that we are not abandoned. Regardless of what you have come into today with, regardless of what you are sitting there at home with today, regardless of what's going on at home or what was going on at school, regardless of all the craziness that is happening in the world today, we know with confidence that Jesus Christ has not abandoned us. So by ascending to the throne, Christ sends his presence through the Holy Spirit to be with us for all of our days. So what this means is that there's no secrets in your life. There's no hidden truths that are hidden from God's view. God knows you more deeply and personally than you know yourself. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And this is comforting. Some of us might be afraid of that, but this is a, is a great thing because this means that, that even with all the baggage that we have, all the junk that we have in our lives, that does not stop the Lord from loving us. So the fact that he is reigning at the right hand of the Father, the fact that he is God, encourages us when we're feeling absolutely hopeless. We know that we don't have an unsympathetic God that is just ruling with an iron fist. We have an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful and merciful Savior that is ruling and reigning over all things. The thing that Jesus about Jesus is that he went through all the things that you have gone through. He suffered. He was rejected. He felt pain. He felt lost. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. Our God understands what you are going through. He understands what I am going through, and he is compassionate towards our sorrows, our losses, our pain. And this is the beauty of the ascension because one who has felt this pain is now representing us to the Father. And like I've, I've said before a, a number of times, one of the things that makes Christianity so fundamentally unique among all other beliefs in the world is that it is the only religion where the God of that religion will say to you, I will never ask you to go through something that I am not willing to go through myself. We're not abandoned here on earth, and we certainly won't be abandoned when we get to heaven. So one of the great comforts of the ascension is that Christ is our advocate before the Father. Now, if you don't know what an advocate is, basically it just means that he is our support. He's our witness, and he pushes for you on your behalf. And so the one way that I usually tell people about this is that uh, when Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter says, you know, if everyone else betrays you, that's on them. I'm going to stick with you. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now what Christ is doing there is he is working and praying on behalf of Peter. He's going to the Father in prayer and saying, hey, this one is mine. Satan might knock on the door, but he's not going to take him. And in a sense, this is what Christ continues to do for us even now. Now, I think a lot of times people like to think of Christ being our advocate like it's some sort of courtroom drama. And, and we see God, he's sitting on the throne, Satan's there, he's accusing us, and Jesus is acting as our defense attorney. Now, this is a really nice picture, but that's not all that Jesus does for us as our advocate. His ascension does more than just let him play lawyer in a heavenly courtroom. So imagine that you are in heaven. Imagine that Satan is there accusing you of all the sin that you have committed in your life. And he is absolutely right that you have done all of these things. You can't prove in any way that you have not committed any of the crimes that Satan is calling you out on. And Satan says, you know, the only just course of action and the only verdict that can be given is a guilty verdict. Death is what he deserves. 
And God says, you're right, they're guilty and they must pay the punishment for their crimes against me. Now, if Jesus was just acting as our lawyer, he might attempt to, to work out a plea bargain like a good lawyer would, or he might try to reduce the sentence, but he does so much more than that. Instead, he, he goes up to the bench and he calls his father and says, you know, father, don't lessen the sentence at all. Instead, what I want you to do, charge it entirely to me. I am able to pay it. At the price of my blood, I will cover their sentence. They don't owe a single thing because I have paid it in full. The ascension is our proof that our sins have been covered, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Any accusation that Satan brings to the Father against us, Christ has already paid in full. Now, the second truth that we see in this is that the ascension shows us where we're going. If we were to look at the Gospel of John, we would see one of Christ's purposes for going back to the Father was that, that he would prepare a place for us. And we see this in John chapter 14. So Christ ascends to the throne of God with us in mind. We know then that when we die, we are not going to go to purgatory. We're not going to be wandering spirits. We're not going to just be floating around. We're not going to be in the all soul of the universe. We know that we are going to be where Christ is. So the ascension, it shows that there's this gap, right, between where we are now and where we're going. We see that this is not the end. The earth is not our final home. Instead, we go to a place that is beautifully prepared for us by our Father. And like Paul says, what is perishable will put on the imperishable. The dead will rise. We will meet the Lord in the clouds. And this is a beautiful truth that we see in 1 Corinthians 15. We know that we'll be changed, that the person that we will become is not who we are right now. And I'm very thankful for that because I don't necessarily always like the person I am right now. So I know that it's a beautiful thing that the Lord has something greater in store for me. We know that like Jesus, we're going to cast aside the garment of flesh and we're going to put on robes of righteousness. We will be whole, we'll be in the presence of Jesus. So one of the great reliefs that we can get out of these verses is the guarantee that Jesus is coming back. And now we have the tendency to live our lives as if he wasn't, right? Like we tend to go through so many moments as if we don't know with confidence that Jesus is coming back. We go out not in the boldness that a risen and reigning Savior gives us. We go out with uncertainty and trying to hold on to just some aspect of faith. So if we're serving a risen Savior, we can't have a spirit of fear when he's given us a spirit of power. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So here's something you may have missed in these verses that we have gone through today. I was reading through these verses uh, for, for several days trying to to pinpoint what I was going to teach about. And what I see here, and what I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, is that in these verses, I still see followers of Jesus that faced a lot of worry and a lot of uncertainty. I highly doubt that as the apostles are seeing Jesus, their leader, ascend into the sky, that they feel like they have all the answers, that they feel like they have it all together. And in fact, we know this because the angels have to appear to them to tell them what's going on. They kind of have to show up and say, guys, come on, you got to keep moving. There's something else that you need to do. So let me place you in the shoes of the apostles real quick. Imagine about a month ago, you had just witnessed your friend and your leader crucified on a Roman cross. You saw him beaten, bloodied, pierced, and placed in a tomb. So for three days, you are struggling to find hope. You are locking yourself away. Every footstep that you hear, you think is a guard on his way to arrest you and to put you to death. But then one day you look and you hear that the tomb is empty. 
you start second guessing if, if this is really happening, but you're, you're starting to wonder. Like you're, you're wondering what's going on. But then suddenly Jesus himself comes through the door and starts talking to you. And this is great. Your best friend, your closest ally for three and a half years is alive. And this is amazing. But then you hear him say, don't hang on to me. I still am going to your father and to my father. And so you enjoy his presence for 40 days. But each day you're thinking, is today the day where he's going to leave me? And then finally he says, today is the day that I'm returning to my God and to your God. Then in a moment you look up and he's gone. And again, that same fear when he was hanging on the cross, when he was placed in the tomb, that fear, that worry you're experiencing again. You're not certain of what life is going to look like. You're uncertain of what your role is in all of this. And don't we often wonder this today? Like we go through these periods of of. Like, I don't know, God, I, don't, I have so much uncertainty right now. And we're living our lives as, as if he was still in the tomb. Like, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to cast the fear away. He is risen. He's seated. He is seated on the throne. And we're reminded of these things, and we know that they're true. We've seen it for ourselves, and yet it's so easy to be frightened, isn't it? It's so easy to think that, that Jesus is gone and he isn't coming back. It's so easy to think that he isn't in control. And I am certain, for a moment, this is what the apostles were thinking. They were seeing him leave again, and they were just so uncertain. So that uncertainty that you face, it's nothing new. But just like the apostles, we know that we have hope. So our hope is in verse 11, which I'll read it again. The angels come, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels are saying, what are you doing? Like, we, we may think that this is a strange question, but I want you to look at it this way. Like, let's say that a loved one of you leaves to go to the store. Do you stand at the door waiting for them to get back, or do you go back to your business? Like, you go to the work. You do what you need to do. Or think back to the old days when people would go out on these long voyages on ships, and the loved ones would wait at the dock waiting for them to come back. And if they were delayed, they would start to lose hope. They feel like they were waiting in vain. They waited with the hope that they will return someday, but they were never really 100% certain that they were going to come back. So here's what I think the angels are doing. I think the angels are telling the apostles, stop waiting for Jesus as if you're unsure of him coming back. Like, stop waiting if you, because you might not think that, that he is 100% coming. He's saying, they're saying, go back to the work. Because he is 100% really coming back. The way you saw him leave is the same way that he will return. So what does this remind us today? Because here we are. We are 2,000 years after this monumental event. And so what can we learn from this? I want to give you three things kind of quickly. The first thing that we can learn from this is that we are not waiting for something that is not guaranteed. We're not looking ahead to something that might happen. We're looking ahead to something that will absolutely happen. So when things start to feel like they are falling apart, we can remember that Jesus really is coming back. The second thing that we can gather from this is that Jesus is king over all. So when he comes back, he won't be coming back like he came the first time. We won't have tiny newborn Jesus. We will have conquering king, resurrected power and glory Jesus on his way to bring his children home. The angels announce that the king is on his throne and the king will be coming soon. And then finally, the third thing that I want us to, to be able to look back on is in verse 8. Christ tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So we know 
the presence of God is with us even now. With the Holy Spirit in our hearts right now, we enjoy a much closer relationship with God than if Christ was physically just still here on earth. So J.D. Greer, he has this great book out called Jesus Continued, where he talks exactly how the Holy Spirit inside of us is more beneficial than if Christ was just physically beside us. And it's an amazing resource. So because we have the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not physically tied to just one location in one part of the globe. The Holy Spirit is moving and active all around the world, testifying to the power of the risen and ascended Jesus. So going back to John Calvin, he said that of this of Christ's ascension. He said, being raised to heaven, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight. Not that he might cease to be with his followers who are still pilgrims on the earth, but that he might rule both heaven and earth more immediately by his power. So by ascending, we see that Jesus has a far greater influence and far greater authority and power over all things. So we have hope because we have power, and that power comes from the one that has ascended and the one that is one day coming back. So here's, here's where we come in at as the church. I told you earlier that we would work backwards and end up back here in Luke, or, or in, uh, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So Luke, the writer of Acts, says in verse 1 that in his gospel account, he started writing all about what Jesus began to do. And so what this means is that even after his work on the cross, or on the cross, there was still work to be done. So what work is that? Well, it's the message of the gospel. You see, that message did not stop on Easter morning 2,000 years ago. It did not stop when Christ descended to the throne. The message of the gospel continues to go out in power even now. That is the work that is to be done. Christ has not yet returned, therefore there is still much to do. We are called to be deliverers of that message. We are the hands and feet of Christ on this earth. We are continuing to carry out the work that he has called us to. Now what's encouraging to me, and I hope this is encouraging to you, is that Notice that Luke does not say that Jesus began to do this and then he left the rest to us. No, he just says the work that Jesus began to do. So here's what this means. It means that, that Jesus' work, it's still his work. And it reminds us that he is still working with us. He's leading in power. He's sending. His church is moving. And this is because he has ascended. The message of the church, it does not begin with the church. The message of the church, the message of the gospel begins and is sustained through Jesus Christ. So we work while we wait, right? We know what we are waiting for. We know who we are waiting for. And we know that we are not waiting in vain for something that might not happen. We're waiting for something that will happen with eager expectations. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, that we aren't to grieve like those that have no hope. If Jesus was, was still in the tomb, if he wasn't sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father, then we would have every reason to grieve like people that didn't have hope. We would have every reason in the world to give up the work. And it is, his thing, it is a great thing to have hope. Human beings thrive on hope. So Paul goes on to tell us in the rest of 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be the first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, when Jesus ascended to the Father the first time, he did it alone. The next time, it's not going to be exactly like that. Multitudes of brothers and sisters in the faith 
are going to rise up with him and be with him forever. So Paul reminds us to encourage each other with these words. Right now, when we're facing so much uncertainty, I think we need to be encouraged by these words. We need to be encouraged that the the, the very Jesus that went up 2,000 years ago is one day coming back. Because Jesus was the first to ascend to the Father, we can know with certainty that one day we are going to do the same. So what are we waiting for? Why are we sitting there as if the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not one day coming back for us? There is work to be done. There's people that need to know that the King is coming back. This Jesus who was taking up from us into heaven will come in the same way as we saw him go into heaven. And that's going to be a glorious day when that happens. This is a day that is marked on heaven's calendar. And there are people out there that realize that this day is not coming. There, there are people out there that don't realize that this day is coming soon. There are people out there that are living their entire lives as if Jesus Christ was still in the tomb. Now we know the truth. And it's time for us as his church to get to work. We serve a risen king who is seated forever on his throne, who has empowered us through his presence to advance his kingdom all over the globe. And that there is why we see the ascension as one of the most crucial aspects of the Christian faith, as one of the most encouraging things in all of history, knowing that Jesus Christ was dead, but he is risen and he has ascended to the Father. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I just pray that we do not neglect this truth. I pray that we live as those who are confident and have hope, knowing that you are coming back, that we know that you have ascended, that you are reigning and ruling over all things. Father, we know that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that there is nothing on this earth that has more power over you, and it's in that we can rejoice. We know that you are good, we know that you are holy, and we love you so much, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.